This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Cameron Cowan. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. I appreciate you for coming by. We have a whole parcel of news stories today. We're going to talk about supply chain issues. We're going to talk about the Facebook situation. We're also going to talk about... um, What was the other thing we were going to talk about? Oh, yes. Flash flooding, water issues, climate change, all this type of thing. I should know this because I just wrote the description for this live stream. Um, But... Just didn't get that far. Um, I'm speaking a little bit quietly today because my throat is tired. I have done three pot. I've done two podcast interviews for the Cameron Journal. I did a two and a half hour um, video appearance with Brendan uh, Bushy from Delaware. He and I talked about well a little bit of everything. Um, it's on my uh, Twitter. Um, I'm going to share it more broadly, but it's on Twitter right now. Um, <clears throat> and uh, and so my, my throat's just a little bit exhausted this week. I've been talking a lot. Um, and so um, I'm just uh, I'm just tired out. Um, and so I'm talking a little bit quietly because um, I actually woke up with a sore throat today. Um, and I was kind of like, what a day to wake up with a sore throat on the day I have to record the podcast and do a live stream. Um, programming note, um, I, uh, readers will know that I am, uh, in the middle of doing a Master's of Fine Arts in Creative Writing at Goddard College, and I am beginning my teaching practicum on Tuesday, October 12th, and I'm teaching on Tuesdays and Thursdays um, for the next month. And the uh, teaching on Tuesdays and Thursdays directly conflicts with this podcast. So um, we are gonna move to Fridays for the next month or so. So if if you're listening to this audio only when it comes out on Saturday, you're unaffected. Still gonna come out on Saturday. If you are listening to this, if you're watching this live, rather, um, on YouTube and Facebook and Twitch and LinkedIn, then um, it'll be on Fridays, and I will make sure to post that to social media. If you are part of the writing community and you want to take a class that is um, about creative writing for the first two weeks and then self-publishing the latter two weeks, then... Um, this class is for you. It's called The Power of Story, How to uh, Harness Your Creativity and Release It into the World. And um, if you would like to learn about my self-publishing journey, how to publish your own book, what resources are available, and do some writing, learn how to outline, get organized, do research, all this type of thing, then um, this class is definitely for you. If you, the class is free, um, it's, uh, 
Tuesdays and Thursdays from October 12th to November 11th. And if you would like to join into the class, um, you can uh, get at me on social media, uh, at Cameron Cowan on Twitter, uh, Cameron L. Cowan, Facebook.com slash Cameron L. Cowan. Um, or you can email me uh, to the public inbox, which is email at CameronCowan.net. So that's just email at Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N, Cowan, C-O-W-A-N, just like it is on your screen that you're watching right now, um, dot net. Um, or, and it's on the, it's at CameronJournal.com. If you go to our contact page, the email is on there. Um, then uh, you can, um, you can uh, just let me know, contact me. Um, I'll get you the Zoom link, all this type of thing. And uh, we can go from, we can go from there. So it's going to be exciting. I'm doing it in, uh, in collaboration with uh, Douglas Cole and the Bellevue Community College. And so there's going to be some of his students there. I'm going to start talking about this on social media over the weekend. Um, I basically just got like approval, like final approval for everything for it today. Um, and then it's like, oh crap, starting on Tuesday, all this sort of thing. So, um, we're kind of getting all that together and all of that arranged. And uh, yeah, but if you want to take a really cool writing class, um, yeah, I'm going to be talking about it a lot on social media over the weekend. So, um, but if you want to come uh, do a cool writing class, hang out, make some new people, we're going to do a little bit of writing sessions. We're going to do a group editing session, um, kind of like a group feedback thing. If you want to uh, do that, hang out with that. Um, I'm going to try to keep the environment very non-judgmental, very supportive, all this type of thing. Um, you know, if you want to take that on and do that sort of thing, then this class, um, could definitely be for you and you get to hang out with me for like two nights a week for a month. So, um, I know for some people, uh, that might make them recoil in horror, um, while other people that might sound like something, um, really interesting and exciting. So, um, I'm, like I said, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be uh, great and a lot of fun. Um, I am excited to be sharing a lot of what I've learned over the last seven years. Um, writing, like when I started in 2014, I had, I don't even think I had half a novel. I had half of Cast Iron, an idea of how I might finish it. Um, I didn't really know what self-publishing options were and was. I was kind of like, well, maybe I might try, like, blogging seriously for myself and YouTube and all this type of thing. And, um, uh, and try to, you know, see if I can put myself out there and make something of myself. And over the next seven years, I learned video, audio, design, WordPress, layout, all this type of thing. I quit for a while, got some jobs, came back, started another magazine. It's been a whole journey. I've written, you know, thousands of pieces um, since then. Um, before then, I'd mostly done business writing. I'd written for my college newspaper a little bit, um, all this type of thing. And so I... Um, uh, 
So I, it was a big change for me. And so I've learned so much. I've pitched agents. I've gotten full requests from major agencies. Um, I've met with major agents. I've gotten feedback. I've sat down with agents and gotten feedback on my work. And we're going to talk through the whole process. Literally from your first sentence to final publication, we're going to go over the entire process. And we're going to, um, we're going to talk about um, how one gets through the creative process, working with editors, working with beta readers, and then how to put your work out into the world and what all options you have um, in, you know, kind of forming your writing journey and, uh, you know, how to build your audience, how to build an author platform, um, how to do it in an easy way that's not going to take up all your time away from writing, all this type of thing. Um, there's a lot of people that offer classes and training like this. Um, there's like Mark Dawson, Joanna Penn, um, a lot of people that do this sort of thing. Um, and I guess what makes me unique is that they they have made teaching other people how to write their business. I have not. Um, writing is still my main business. So for so with me, the class is really like, here's what I'm doing. Like this is on the ground sort of thing. Um, and it's um, it's going to be really exciting. And uh, yeah, and the, it's my teaching practicum for my MFA as well. And so and I have to have a minimum of three students. So hopefully I will get three, at least three people to come and take my class the whole time and uh, and go through and uh, and 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 do the thing. So it should be a lot of fun. It should be super interesting. Um, I'm really excited to do it. It's going to make the next month of my life a little nuts. Um, but uh, it, it should be really, it should be really cool. Um, I apologize that there hasn't been a ton of content on the blog this week. Um, I am, in addition to having a throat thing that I think may be trying to be a cold, um, I don't think it's COVID, but for example, right now, I'm looking at the temperature. It's 73 in here, which is about the temperature um, I keep my uh, studio. And uh, it's uh, I feel like it's a bit cold in here. Um, in fact, I was thinking about that after the podcast, I was like, I'm going to turn on the heat. Um, it is only 58 degrees outside. So um, there is kind of a reason for it to be a little bit chilly in here. But, um, you know, I think I may be kind of sort of coming down with something. And so... Um, yeah, so I, you know, I think it's going to be really exciting and a lot of fun and, uh, and, but anyway, I've been, I've been, you know, under the weather, um, a little bit this past week, so I haven't had a chance to do a ton of writing. Um, we did have a great new podcast episode on Monday. We had an interview, um, and if you give me a moment, I'll tell you who it was, because I don't remember who we interviewed. For the podcast, I remember I did the interview last week as well, um, and uh, let's see, well, it might have just been, um, yes, oh, it's the Leadership Podcast, yes, 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 um, with Philip Kane, um, the executive, former executive of Goodyear Tire Company, um, yes, he, um, wrote this great book about leadership. We talk about management styles, all that type of thing. That was on Monday. Um, this Monday upcoming, we have a great new interview 
Um, and uh, today I interviewed uh, Brian Cuban, Mark Cuban's brother, about um, his uh, memoir and his, his memoir, The Addicted Lawyer, and his new... Um, his new novel called The Ambulance Chaser, which is kind of a legal thriller. Um, and so it's it's great. Um, we're putting, uh, you know, he's kind of putting himself out there. And he and I talk about addiction and recovery and drugs and drug culture and all this sort of thing. And um, I realized mid-podcast that he's Mark Cuban's brother because I didn't put two and two together about that when I booked him to interview. So that's that's going to be fun. Um, so that'll be out um, out on October the 18th. So yeah, we have interviews on Monday. So um, it'll be really, uh, it's really exciting. So yeah, so we have a, a new podcast episode this week. Um, my monthly newsletter that I write to my subscribers um, is exclusive to my subscribers. I write uh, unique content, um, kind of a commentary on like what's going on with me, what's going on with the world, all this type of thing. And, um, uh, and so we're just kind of, you know, it's, it's exclusive. It only appears, you know, in that newsletter. Um, I do link it on social media. Um, but if you want it delivered to your inbox, you do have to subscribe. So if you head over to uh, CameronJournal.com, if you scroll down halfway down the page, a pop-up will come up, or there's sign up a sign-up form uh, at the bottom of the homepage, and you can get my newsletter um, delivered directly to your inbox. I usually send around a couple of blog posts from the past month as well. Um, I've also been sending out kind of a weekly roundup of what's on the blog through a great new service called Review. Um, on Twitter. So if you head over to my Twitter at Cameron Cowan, um, you can sign up for that as well. Or here's the nice thing. If you sign up on my website for the monthly newsletter, you'll also be signed up to review because it's all I keep it all connected. So if you sign up for one of my email lists, you sign up for all of my email lists. So um, and like I said, I don't spam. I don't sell people's email addresses. I don't sell. It's like it's like if you were giving it to me as a friend. Like I just like I have my little list of people. I email them from time to time. You know, it's like it's like a friend, and I'm just like I'm just like your distant friend, and I email you from time to time. So I only send out a couple emails a month. I'm not gonna flood your email box, so don't worry about that. Your data is not going anywhere, and your email box is not gonna get flooded. So like I said, I'm like a cool friend that just emails you a couple times a month. So. I'm going to take a drink real quick. Because again, throat, not good. All right. That's the admin. That's all that taken care of. That's updates about me. Blah, blah, blah. Let's dive into the news. So um, obviously the biggest news story this week has to do with Facebook. And in Vanity Fair, I found this really interesting story that was bouncing off a New York Times Magazine piece about the bad art friend where someone donated a kidney to a stranger. And the situation was so bizarre, someone wrote a, a short story about it. And um, it was a kind of, it's, that alone has been a crazy thing. But the point of this piece is that Facebook kind of has um, the same the same sort of difficulty and this week um face face it's been a bad week at facebook um francis hogan um who was um someone who formerly worked at facebook uh went on 60 minutes on sunday um she's a whistleblower 
and um, revealed with documents about how Facebook is very well aware of the adverse effect it has on society, on the world, how Instagram causes body dysmorphia issues, especially in teen girls and children and all this sort of thing and how um, they're aware of their adverse effect on society and how the way their algorithm is built to get more engagement and cause emotions in people that uh, they're having an adverse effect on society. They know it and they are not doing anything about it. They're not trying to stop it. Um, they're not trying to uh, mitigate those harmful effects. Um, we already know that Facebook was a primary organizing platform for the January 6th insurrection. We also know that Facebook uh, was used to cause a genocide in Myanmar, which means for better or for worse, Facebook is literally killing people. And <clears throat> the difficulty is that there is little to no regulation on preventing Facebook from adversely affecting people's lives and democracy in this way. So on Sunday, we got that bombshell from whistleblower Francis Hagen. Then, literally the next day, um, Facebook then had a six-hour uh, outage. Um, then, right, literally Sunday night, whistleblower, Monday outage. Facebook, all of its services were offline for six hours, um, which includes Facebook, Instagram, uh, Facebook Messenger, and WhatsApp. Uh, and one of the kind of the side stories of the Facebook outage is how WhatsApp Messenger, which Facebook bought, I think, in 2017, um, although in, in not in popular use in the United States, in the rest of the world, particularly in Africa, the Middle East, Latin America, and most of Asia, um, WhatsApp is an essential utility. It's how people are able to talk to each other without having to worry about minutes and data and international calling and all this type of thing. People use WhatsApp to call, people use WhatsApp to message, and they essentially people were cut off from friends and family all over the world for six hours on Monday. Um, in fact, it's um, the one this Vanity Fair story reminds us that WhatsApp um, is essentially shut down communication in countries where the products have become tantamount to public utilities. Um, and in a lot of uh, other countries' cell phone plans, WhatsApp messaging and calling is totally free. And it's a great way if you if you have family that lives in another country to keep in touch with them without having to pay international calling rates. And so having WhatsApp go down literally cut off two-thirds of the world from each other because of the outage. So it was a very tough 24 hours at Facebook. Facebook services eventually did come back online. They said it was an engineering glitch with what they were trying to, they were trying to roll out something new and it did not work. Um, so obviously the conspiracy theories were flying around that it was Facebook dumping data. Um, other people said, no, it was Facebook trying to prove a point that they're an essential you know, utility, they're an essential part of life. And, you know, without them, uh, you know, things are not, you know, going to work as well um, as they ordinarily might otherwise. And so it was, it was an interesting, um, an interesting sort of 24 hour period for the popular social media giant. And 
I, I feel strongly that, um, this Facebook story, this latest iteration of it, um, is definitely not going to go away. And that much should be obvious, hopefully to people at Facebook. But I think the other thing that is, I think, rather important, um, is the fact that there is precious little that can really be done to regulate Facebook for a variety of reasons. Um, one is because most people in government do not understand how Facebook works. That's the first problem. The second problem is that within a platform like Facebook or even other social media platforms, you have to balance two things together. One is freedom of speech, and second is the how much are you going to go to censor what people are going to say or what people do on your platform? And at what point does trying to stop the spread of, quote, disinformation or misinformation just simply become censorship? And for me, as a radical free speech person, if I have to pick between government regulation of censorship and no censorship, I would rather pick no censorship because that may, that makes sure that the government cannot control what I do. Having free speech is the foundation of my business. Without free speech, I'm dead in the water. I need to have the freedom to write what I want, say what I want, and, you know, distribute my content on any platform that will take me. And how much responsibility do we want to put on Facebook? How much responsibility do we want to put on the government to try to control that in these difficult times? And the argument can be made, you know, well, you know, Facebook, you know, didn't you say moments ago that Facebook caused a genocide? I did. Uh, didn't you say that Facebook helped cause the January 6th insurrection? Yep. You know, didn't we all love it when Donald Trump finally got banned from Twitter? Absolutely. Um, all this sort of thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's all kind of a very difficult a difficult thing. Yeah, like it's all very a hard thing to balance. And it's something where do I think maybe Facebook should do a better job? Yes. Do I necessarily want to have the government involved in that? No. How's the government going to regulate Instagram in such a way that it doesn't cause, you know, teenage girls to be insecure about their bodies and their looks? We had the same problem back in the 90s with magazines. In the before times, people old enough to remember this will remember this, um, there were no fat people in magazines. There, there weren't like if you if you were in a magazine you were the people in magazines were always thin pretty you know good luck finding a black person you might find one or two hispanic people you might find one or two um everyone was white good looking super thin all the women were you know size two and below um there was no ashley graham there was no tessa holiday um you know there was i mean there just didn't exist all the dudes were broad-chested, square-jawed, ripped, tanned, you know, perfect muscles, lean, sculpted, all this sort of thing across the board. And um, 
and that that was like that was it like that was the standard it was like you know Oh, like, I mean, I remember in high school, you know, so you walk by Amber Crombie and Fitch and, you know, the girls are, you know, a size zero, you know, they wear extra smalls, they have, you know, sun-kissed, bleach blonde hair, all the dudes are, you know, pink lips, square jawed, eyes perfectly distance apart, you know, you know, per, you know, great chest, you know, maybe like faint outline of abs or like full-on abs, you know, and, you know, if he has a 32-inch waist, he's like, ooh, must have, you know, must have some butt or something. And that's the way it was. That was the world of media. And it took a long time before magazines began to embrace diversity of skin color, much less diversity of bodies. You know, as the chubby brown kid, if I opened up a magazine, there were no people who looked like me in there. So this problem predates Instagram. Nobody ever called on the government to regulate Vogue as to what type of models that they used. Now, in France, they eventually did ban super thin models. Um, but that was a one-off sort of thing, never really took off in America. Nobody was saying we needed to regulate the magazine industry. People criticized them pr for promoting a certain body image, but nobody was saying, well, we should regulate it. All of a sudden, now with Instagram, we're having the same thing. It's the same problem, but now we're talking about government regulation. And so for me personally, I'm caught between a rock and a hard spot. Because on the one hand, I see the dangers of social media. I think we all do. If you haven't watched The Social Network or any of the work of Jer and Lanier, then you need to. Because he is incredibly smart on these things, and he talks about how the dangers and perils of social media. And he has done tremendous work helping us understand the world of social media and what trouble we have borrowed with these platforms and how it has caused problems in society. And... Um... You know, his recommendations delete everything. And some people might say, well, you know, aren't we just, isn't life a little bit better without Facebook? I mean, some of us lived whole lives before Facebook came along. You know, I was, you know, into my 20s before Facebook came along. You know, couldn't we, you know, live, ha you know, better life through less Facebook um, sort of thing. As much as we may not like what people say on certain platforms, and as much as we may not enjoy the conspiracies and the falsehoods and the bad memes and the poor sources and all this type of thing, getting rid of Facebook is only going to slow down the distribution of it, but it's not going to stop the disinformation, the misinformation. Most of the stuff that people are posting are coming from other blogs or memes or pictures or whatever have you. Those things are still going to exist. It's just that you're not going to spread them as far and as fast. Will that help? Maybe, possibly, but people may still end up seeking that sort of thing out. And I'm not saying that we should maybe shouldn't find a way to do something about Facebook or try to break it up or whatever have you. And I'm not saying that Facebook isn't causing harm. It is. But in our rush to regulate them and censor them, we also have to be mindful of our free speech rights. We have to be mindful of the fact that in the public square, we need to be able 
to express our views, even if they're not popular, even if people don't like them. This isn't the first time in American history where we have had to deal with um, false information being widely disseminated. Um, newspapers were well known for printing uh, questionable things um, well into the late 19th century. And, and it was ultimately consumers that shifted things around. It was, it was libel. I mean, libel laws certainly helped. Um, and, uh, and, and slander laws certainly helped with, with all of that. But it, it was a long time before newspapers really cleaned up their act on some of the things that were getting published. And, you know, in the United States, we kind of have this unique situation where the First Amendment protects us against government censorship of speech. However, that, that does not extend to something like Facebook, which is a private platform. What it does do, um, though, is it gives us perhaps an opportunity to decide how to better educate people, how to make people media smart, how to um, counteract the sort of misinformation and disinformation that thrives on social media platforms. Now, one of the things that the whistleblower mentioned that I thought was very interesting is she talks about how Facebook's algorithm is really optimized to generate that reaction. And they have found, and any social scientist will tell you this, that a, um, you know, a poor, you know, a, a, it is easier to get an angry reaction than it is to get a positive one. An angry reaction, and something that's going to cause anger is going to get a reaction far faster than something that causes happiness, pleasure, or joy. And so Facebook has dialed into this. It's hacked the human brain, and it has created a system and a situation in which the, it, it is the content that it chooses to serve up to you through the algorithm is hyper-optimized to, um, to cause reaction, cause engagement, keep you on the site, keep you using the app, and thereby keep you engaged and clicking on ads and making them money. This obviously isn't positive, but how we regulate that or stop them from doing that, I, I don't know. This piece from Vanity Fair kind of reflects, the, I think, part of the situation that we find ourselves in, especially with the online environment. So, um, here's a bit from the Vanity Fair article and how Facebook can be a bit dangerous. It says here, to understand, it's helpful to catalog it's helpful to catalog the light acts of antisocial online behavior littered throughout the story. Don Dorland, a woman who generously donated a kidney to a stranger, regarded a private Facebook group as a place to share extremely personal information about the event, including the text of a letter she sent to the recipient. She also used it as a record of who among her friends had genuflected to her and reached out to one who hadn't. This is a huge violation of a rule that many people, whether consciously or not, adhere to for the sake of sanity in the social media age. Online isn't real, and you shouldn't do things that make it seem more real. Sonia Larson, an acquaintance whom Dorland subsequently launched an attack on, was understandably perturbed by the posts and gossiped about them with her friends, then seemingly lifted the oddly personal message for a short story about a kidney donor. 
This violates a slightly less important rule of online life. It's fine to gossip, but assiduously hide the receipts. Then there's Tom Meek, a friend who informed Roland about the story while tagging Larson in his comment. Another slightly lesser rule of digital engagement, snitch tagging is a surefire way to start an argument you can't control. If these rules all sound dumb to you, that's because they are. But understanding this arcane logic is the only way to survive if you, like me, are motivated by a profession and have an inclination to keep social media profiles. In order to spend our lives online, most of us learn to disconnect vague senses of propriety and manners from our social media interactions. Lots of people, for some reason or another, don't do this and want the internet to function more like real life. Conflicts between these two types of people happen everywhere on the internet, and neither group is inherently in the right. I often joke that we need to break the entire network of tubes into two parts, one for silly people and one for literal people. Nowhere is this need more obvious than on Facebook. By encouraging users to recreate their real-life social groups on the internet, i.e. encouraging a loose definition of friendship that binds you to everyone you've ever met as though there's someone your grandma knows from church, but algorithmically amplifying negative posts without context, Facebook is uniquely able to force these people to interact. Essentially, Zuckerberg invented a machine that will continually serve you things that you hate from people you feel an obligation to be polite to. And we shouldn't be surprised that it hasn't turned out well. Small communities have always depended on shame, subtle policing, and the threat of expulsion to maintain boundaries. Traditionally, that has been about exercising power. A system that pushes us towards negative content introduces an element of chaos into all of this, and that's reminiscent of The Lottery, Shirley Jackson's corny yet profound short story about how easy it is to get everyone to turn on one another for no real reason at all. The exigencies of Facebook have made our previous disciplinary structures impossible, and the ones that have emerged, such as gossipy group chats, are curiously susceptible to subpoena power, as is made painfully clear in Bad Art Friend. Um, and then it goes on to the to the end and all this type of thing. Um, they recommend, you know, a sort of, you know, niche communities rather than this sort of general uh, free-for-all um, that is, you know, Facebook. And, you know, they mentioned the fact that that can't really be supported by advertising, which means it can't really be free. Um, and that is, you know, that is the problem. You know, we have, we have a terrible intersection of advertising, corporatism, profit, changing social structures... And society and all of these things have just kind of rammed into each other on Facebook and we're still working out the chaos can government do anything about that should government do anything about that I think remains to be seen now shifting stories um away from facebook and the bad terrible no good awful week between the shutdown and the whistleblower um francis hoggins interview is on uh youtube if you want to go watch it i actually watched it just before this and i thought it was really fascinating um and uh i am already kind of sort of losing my throat so we're going to dash through these last two stories and we're going to call it a week. Um, besides Facebook and its issues this week, you might have noticed that there's a little bit of a shortage of everything these days. 
uh, go into a store, go into a grocery store, Target, Walmart, whatever have you, you might um, be finding that there's not a whole lot of anything on the shelves these days. Um, it seems like the whole country has just run out of everything. Well, there's a reason for that. Um, the reason for that is that the, the global supply chain, as we have known it, the pandemic um, has basically broken the global supply chain. So in, in all of our rush to offshore and outsource manufacturing and production of everything, um, most goods come from far away. They come mostly from Southeast Asia and China. Um, but they can come from, you know, Japan, China, Taiwan, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, the whole region. And so you end up with, you know, all of this stuff gets put in containers, it goes on ships, and then it comes to America, it goes to Canada, it goes to South America, Mexico, and then some of it goes all the way around and ends up in Europe. And, um, and those containers tend to be very full on the way out, and they tend to be very empty on the way back, as we buy much more stuff from them than they than they buy from us. And when the pandemic shutdown started to happen and ports began to shut and ships began to be stranded and, and the crews stranded as well, um, and, and you know China started closing ports and factories were closing because of COVID outbreaks and all this sort of thing, the entire global supply chain just seemed to stop. And now that things have started to get back to a little bit of normal, um, the supply chain unfortunately has not been able to catch up even though economic demand right now is at a sky high. Today in the Atlantic, we have a story that talks about this exact problem, and there was a couple sections I wanted to read that I thought were interesting. Um, it says here that uh, the U.S. economy is not yet experiencing a downturn akin to the 1970s period of stagflation, although we could end up with stagflation, but that's another conversation. This is something different and quite strange. Americans are settling into a new phase of the pandemic economy in which GDP is growing, but we're also suffering from a dearth of a shocking array of things. COVID test kits, car parts, semiconductors, ships, shipping containers, and workers. This is the everything shortage. The everything shortage is not the result of one big bottleneck in, say, Vietnamese factories or in the American trucking industry. We are running low on a supplies of all kinds due to a veritable hydra of bottlenecks. The coronavirus pandemic has snarled global supply chains in several ways. Pandemic checks sent hundreds of billions of dollars to cabin-fevered Americans during a fallow period in the service sector. A lot of that cash has flowed to hard goods, especially home goods, such as furniture and home improvement materials. Many of these materials have to be imported from or travel through East Asia, but that region is dealing with the Delta variant, which has been considerably more deadly than previous iterations. Delta has caused several shutdowns at semiconductor factories across Asia, just as demand for cars and electronics has started to pick up. As a result, these stops along the supply chain are slowing down at the very moment when Americans are demanding that they work in overdrive. The most dramatic expression of this snarl is the purgatory of loaded cargo containers stacked on ships bobbing off the coast of Los Angeles and Long Beach. Just as a normal traffic jam consists of too many drivers trying to use too few lanes, the traffic jam at California ports has been exacerbated by extravagant consumer demand slamming into a shortage of trucks, truckers, and port workers. Because ships can't be unloaded, not enough empty containers are in transit to carry all the stuff that consumers are trying to buy. So the world is getting a lesson in Econ 101. High demand plus limited supply equals prices spiraling to the moon. 
Before the pandemic, reserving a container that holds roughly 35,000 books cost $2,500. Now it costs $25,000. The container situation is even weirder than it looks. With demand surging in the United States, shipping a parcel from Shanghai to Los Angeles is currently six times more expensive than shipping one from LA to Shanghai. J.P. Morgan's Michael Shemblast wrote that this has cre created strong incentives for container owners to ship containers to China, even if they're mostly empty, to expedite the packing and shipping of freights in Shanghai to travel east. But when the containers leave Los Angeles and Long Beach empty, American-made goods that were supposed to be sent across the Pacific Ocean end up sitting, in, sitting around in rail cars parked at West Coast ports. Since the packed rail cars can't unload their goods, they can't go back and collect more stuff from filled warehouses in the American interior. This is also a good portion to mention um, that uh, right now in Chicago there is a, a 20 five mile long train backup because there are too many rail cars with too much stuff trying to go west and the railroads are trying to undo this mess but it could be weeks before it gets undone shipping anything right now is expensive and a mess and good luck if it gets there um I, i've known people that have had all sorts of interesting and fascinating shortages packages lost all this type of thing <clears throat> um and the, I, it may be years before this supply chain thing ever works itself out, but the Atlantic offers a solution. I thought that was interesting. It says here, how will the everything shortage be solved? One possibility is that Americans adopt a sustainable, aesthetic, and homespun lifestyle that reduces our dependency on goods that activate the global supply chain. If you can envision such a world, I envy your gift of imagination. The best solution to the everything shortage is to have a policy to make more of just about everything. Containers, which carry more than 90% of the world's traded goods, are overwhelmingly manufactured in China. Why doesn't America make more? Car parts, semiconductors, and home goods have been offshored, making the U.S. sorely reliant on overseas factories. Why can't America make more? At-home COVID-19 tests, which could illuminate household infections and prevent community spread, were only just authorized by the FDA, almost two years into this pandemic. Why hasn't America made more? For decades, many U.S. companies moved manufacturing overseas, taking advantage of cheaper labor and cheaper materials across the oceans. In normal times, America benefits from global trade, and the price of offshoring is borne by the unlucky few in deindustrialized regions. But the pandemic and supply chain breakdowns are a reminder that the decline of manufacturing can be felt more broadly during a crisis when we run out of, well, damn near everything. That's why Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan includes billions of dollars to reshore manufacturing, invest in basic research, and beef up domestic supply chains. Our dearth of manufactured parts and containers is part of a broader crisis of manufactured scarcity in America. A protectionist and anti-growth instinct runs through government, yielding not only a flat-footed CDC and a tardy FDA, but also sharp restrictions on housing construction, immigration, and the licensing of new professionals and tradespeople. Focusing on the redistribution of income and goods is natural for today's progressives, who tend to emphasize the virtue of equality. One lesson of, of the everything shortage is, you cannot redistribute what isn't created in the first place. The best equality agenda begins with an abundance agenda. And I, if you want to read the whole article, it's on The Atlantic today, it's called America's Running Out of Everything. And the supply chain disaster is something that I have been following for a while. 
and 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 here in Seattle, we're right on the scene of it. There are containers stacked in the port of Seattle higher and deeper. They've got them stacked 12, 17 bit high. It's just a complete disaster over there. Um, there are ships sitting in the Puget Sound. Some of them have been out there for months. And it's, it's going to be a while to undo this whole supply chain crisis. But the article makes a good point, and I agree more. I, we have to start bringing manufacturing back, at least to the North American continent. And that's something that I saw a lot of companies starting to look at at the start of the pandemic. And I dare say we will likely, um, we will likely uh, see more of as well um, in the coming years is companies looking for um, to locate manufacturing on the continent where the goods are going to be sold. So if you want TVs to be sold in North America, they should be made somewhere in North America. Um, if you want um, cars, semiconductors, parts, supplies, all this type of thing, you know, made in Europe, then you're going to find some place to make those things in Europe and bring the parts there and have it assembled there and get as many parts as you can from the local area as well. And that's going to sort of redistribute manufacturing around the world but the fact that we basically have taken everything that makes something that allows our society to move forward and basically sent it all overseas was fine in normal times and we made a lot of money off of that but the reality is that when a crisis comes and crises do invariably come all of a sudden that seems incredibly foolish and short-sighted and it seems that way because it is because the whole point of offshoring and outsourcing was to increase profits. That's it. There was no other reason. It wasn't, we thought, you know, oh, China really could use some jobs, and well, we'll send them our jobs. It was simply so companies could make more money. It was simple, ordinary, garden variety greed. And the best part about making more stuff in America is that we can have more good, good paying jobs, particularly for those that don't want or can't go to college. We also have more opportunities to uh, make products more sustainable. Um, we have opportunities to use better materials, um, to use less energy, um, to reduce carbon emissions. Um, and we also have a chance to uh, be in a better position to economically compete with China. And the 21st century, you're, we're going to have multipolar competition between Europe, Asia, and the United States. And the reality is we are uh, ill-equipped <clears throat> right now to actionably compete in that space and um and returning manufacturing to the united states is is quite is quite essential so before my throat gives out and i keep coughing i want to talk about um the u.n water crisis sparked by climate change so this week in central alabama they had a storm that got stuck in uh Bur in the birmingham area um, and, uh, and the amount of water that fell caused terrible flooding in Birmingham and throughout central Alabama, um, including Jefferson County, Shelby County, all this sort of thing. And so obviously homes were flooded, cars were ruined, people were, you know, bailing water out of their cars as they were flooding. And, uh, the UN has warned that the changes in our climate are causing differences in, in the water cycle. Um, it says here from the UN report, as we change the climate, we have learned over the last many decades that we're also going to fundamentally change how much water we get and where we get it. The intensity of storms, rainfall patterns, the severity of droughts and floods, the demand for water from crops and from our natural vegetation. Scientist Peter Glick, 
co-founder of the Pacific Institute in Oakland, California, and a leading expert on how climate change is affecting water, told Yahoo News. This summer, with extreme drought continuing to worsen across several western states, and with flash flooding ravaging communities in the south, midwest, and northeast, the effects of climate change came into focus for many Americans. Bill Maher proposed an interesting idea that I thought <clears throat> was rather interesting. He proposed um, a new water pipeline where we move the water um, from where it isn't and uh, move the water to where it needs to be. So we have too much water in the east, not enough of it in the west, time to build a national water system. I used to say we needed a national water system and everybody thought I was nuts. But um, as, as silly as the idea sounds and as expensive it would be to, you know, pump water up and down elevations and all this sort of thing, um, and, you know, <laughs> you know, all this sort of thing, it, it does seem that we need uh, a better way to manage water and better ways to get it from where it isn't to where it needs to be. Um, and to save it, uh, preserve watersheds, um, make sure that, you know, all of these, you know, Animals and streams and rivers have the opportunity to, you know, have enough water to drain water and also to provide water for um, humanity and to provide water for all the things that we need water to do, which is everything from manufacturing to homes to agriculture um, and, and, and in anything, you know, everything, sanitation, everything else. And uh, being able to organize that in that fashion and create a water system that is resilient to the ways in which our climate is changing, honestly, really is a matter of national security. So it is, everyone knows I'm not always thrilled with the way climate research is being conducted. I'm not always thrilled with the narrative around climate change. And I have issues with the data. I have issues with the narrative, all this type of thing. But the reality is, Regardless of the dominant narrative, the weather is changing. Our climate is changing. Um, the evidence for fossil fuels causing it is not as great as people like to promote it is, but it is certainly a factor. The planet itself is changing. Um, we, we are leaving a, a cooler, uh, you know, kind of end of ice age period, and the planet is getting much warmer, and things are changing away from what we're used to. Taking the time now to build the necessary resilient systems to make surviving this next area possible and making our civilization more resilient is going to be essential basically to our survival as a species. And so, uh, yes, perhaps it's time to build Bill Maher's grand water pipeline. So we're coming up to the top of the hour. Um, my throat is exhausted, so I'm going to grab a throat lozenge, let that rest. And um, I will see you all uh, next week. Um, as I said, we're going to move to Fridays for the next month while I'm doing my teaching practicum. Because if I try to do a podcast and then teach a two-hour class, no. Um, that's not going to work. So if you would like to take my writing class, The Power of Story, um, contact me on social media at Cameron Cowan. Or you can email me, email at CameronCowan.net. Um, and I would love to... Uh, Love to see you in class. Um, I will see you guys next week. We'll have more interesting news and stories. There'll be interviews on Monday. And although it's not done yet, I promise, 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 new produced episodes, season two of the Cameron Journal podcast with new interesting episodes is coming. I will get them recorded soon. I promise we're going to do it. I love you guys for watching or listening, and I will see you guys next week. Be well, guys. Bye-bye.
That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast. <laughs>